Welcome back after our summer break to episode five of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I am none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And we're delighted to be welcoming you all back from the Bennett and Old Girls to listeners around the world as far as America, Africa and Australia. And in case some of our listeners didn't hear the news, I'd like to congratulate Ed very warmly on the peerage that he received over the summer. Many of the guests we've had on this podcast have reminded us what an effective and inspired Minister of Culture Ed was. So I'm sure you'll all agree that the honour is richly deserved. No doubt all this praise is making Ed blush, but as we're still recording remotely, I can't see you. But Ed back to you now. Well, thank you for that praise, Charlotte, which wasn't in the script. I have indeed joined the House of Lords. <laughs> I'm now I'm now Lord Vasey of Didcot, and my brother-in-law has rather unkindly nicknamed me Parkway, which is a bit of an in, <laughs> a bit of an in-joke. And if you're a, if you're a listener in America, Africa, and Australia, you won't get it. Over the next two months, we're going to be bringing you weekly podcasts to keep you informed about all the cultural going on that are opening up around us. But we thought we'd kick off our first podcast of the autumn by talking about a great rival of Country and Townhouse magazine, <laughs> and that is Vogue magazine. Uh, we want to talk about Vogue and we want to talk about photography and magazines because for the first time in its 104-year history, UK Vogue invited a black photographer to shoot its cover. It's seen as a cultural breakthrough, although it shouldn't be seen as that in my opinion. It should be seen as totally normal. But anyway, it's a great friend of mine, Missan Harriman, who is indeed that photographer. And the cover caused waves. The whole edition caused waves. It's a fantastic edition. And Missan is fast becoming the most talked about photographer of our time. So we're thrilled, Missan, to have you on our little podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for, for asking. Hello, my son. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And we're really looking forward to hearing about the theme of the cover. But I think first, our listeners would really love to know about your extraordinarily fast stellar rise to the top. Because I gather you only gave up becoming being a city headhunter to become a professional photographer three years ago and persuaded by your wife. Now, tell us more about that. Yeah, so the, 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 the giving up the headhunting was actually five years ago when I, I decided to to just, you know, look inward and 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 take a bird's eye view of, of who I guess I've always been. I, I was always that kid that uh, that loved film more than most, loved anything that was the arts and culture. I've suffered from what I guess we all suffer from a bit called imposter syndrome and I've always thought, well, why should I try that? I wouldn't be any good at that. And it wasn't until I met Camilla and three years ago, she said, listen, all you do is talk about Park and Norman Parkinson and Irvin Penn and Cecil Beaton and, 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 you know, Gordon Park, so many photographers and they're all amazing. But she was like, I'm sick and tired of hearing you talk about these people. Why don't you create and see whether you can carve out a voice of your own in terms of image making? And I picked up the camera and, uh, I just started by photographing my friends and um, every time that I shot a friend, they would post it on their Instagram and that there would always be quite a strong reaction. So it was a very organic experience in, in people learning about the fact that I actually take photographs. But the photography 
um, is self-taught. Um, I taught myself on YouTube tutorials. I'm, I'm quite heavily dyslexic, so I struggle with traditional methods of uh, consuming information in, in a classroom or on a course. Um, I really like visual, you know, understanding things visually. And I kept shooting and kept shooting. And, and some way along that journey, people decided that I could take a decent image. How did it go from that to Edward Enninful getting you to shoot the cover? I mean, that's a big leap in three years. I, yes, it is. When the civil rights anti-racist movement hit the shores of the United Kingdom, I went out there with my camera and took pictures. Um, and as soon as I put those pictures online, they it was like a tinderbox that, you know, everyone that saw them had a very strong reaction to them. And everyone from the mayor of London to Lewis Hamilton and even the son of Martin Luther King himself used my images to make statements about racism. And, you know, along, you know, with, with so much visibility, Edward Enninful, of course, being on the pulse, um, saw those images and realised, as only people that are visionaries can, that my voice was needed, my visual voice was needed to tell the story of his September issue of British Vogue. Are you coping with international superstardom? Well, I, I you know... Um, I when you have two little ones, your your feet are kept firmly on the ground. Um, I I um, just got vomited on, and um, my my dog had a meltdown as well. So I feel very regular, <laughs> as as I should. Um, but it's been a unique summer. I I I, I am also aware that it's been a life changing f- four months for me, which is something that I'm trying to process as best as I can. Tell us about the edition. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen it, as, as have I. But tell us about the Activism Now theme on the cover, featuring people like Adwo Aboe and Marcus Rashford, 18 other global activists. Can you just paint a picture of the cover, if you like, and tell us about the edition? The issue and the cover is incredibly brave and honest um, for a major glossy to, to do. And on the, the front cover is Marcus Rashford, the the superstar football player from Manchester United who every every other week he seems to be making history and <laughs> making making our government do things that you know many many would say that they they should they should do without any pressure um and obviously with with the with the meals for for children basically living on the poverty line uh, that he 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 used his platform to 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 campaign really um and and force this government to to reverse um, a policy that was not very popular from the onset, and for Edward Enninful to pick him, and Adwa Adwa is is a supermodel that uses her platform to help young girls who are dealing with with mental health issues and and just just being a really positive uh, young woman in this age uh, of of throwaway content online and rampant misogyny. It's it's really. Uh, important to have women like her that are are trying to make a, a safe space for for young girls to 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 blossom in, in in a very very vulnerable time. So to have both of them on the cover, I think um, I call it you know a an, an, an orchestra 
of a symphony, if you like, of, of, of activism orchestrated by, by Edward. And then he reached out to activists globally um, from, from, from North America uh, and all over the United Kingdom. Um, did, you, did you and Edward kind of sit down and discuss who you were going to photograph or did Edward kind of take No, it? no, no. I mean, he, 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 the brilliance of him is that he knows... Uh, everyone, <laughs> yeah. Well, he knows everyone, but he know, he knows who to pick, and, yeah. and 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 the research that's gone into um, some of the activists. These are not many of the people that I photograph are doing, you know, real grassroots stuff. You know, the, you know, we're not talking about international um, names here. A lot of these people are unknown um, to the typical. British Vogue reader, and he wanted to give them a platform, you know, Solace, for example, the founder of Solace, which is a, uh, you know, a, a woman, a woman's domestic violence charity, um, you know, I photographed her for the September issue of British Vogue, I and mean, it's extraordinary. He's been pushing the boundaries um, in a time where a lot of people are questioning what, who they are, what their value systems are really are and it's a perfect time for Vogue to have more than a voice you know we, this is a world that needs more than an observation on clothes and shoes right and that's oh, what yeah. he's doing Miss and I was really interested I read an interview with you somewhere and um, you were talking about using the power of image to eradicate racism and you know how your photography was capturing change and you told a really astonishingly simple but quite kind of wow story just about a night in London that really exemplified how far we've got to go with racism you know when there was a night apparently you were 13 cabs refused mm. to pick you up yeah Hackney Carriage and my good self are, are not the best of friends um, <laughs> no um, it's something that all my friends have had to deal with from a very young age my average is about five that I get I get um I get driven past on on average, but thirteen still, was the still. most. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, well, not yeah. not anymore because we all use every black person I know would use Uber now. Uber, we, we, yeah, was sick and tired of the humiliation, and um, you get different types. You get the ones that slow slow down and take a good look at you and speed up. You get the ones that just switch oh. their lights off as soon as they see you. And my wife is Swedish and and certainly. Um, uh, white <laughs> and uh, it's got to the point now that um, you know if we're in sort of theatre district and need to just get get to the uh, a, a cab quickly we uh, I stand you know five feet behind her and she 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 sticks her hand out and they they screech to a halt and then um, <laughs> are usually horrified when they see me jumping in jumping in with her and and it is um a great observation of what racism is because mm. I think for a lot of my friends uh, that are not black, you know, it's quite difficult to understand what it is to be stopped and search or, or to be, you know, literally injured or killed by the, the, the people that are supposed to protect and serve you. But it's very easy to imagine um, the idea of, leaving somewhere and trying to hail a cab down and being driven past because most people have hailed cabs down. So I use that example a lot to, to help people understand what, what institutional racism is rather than just violence from horrible policemen. Can we just um, talk as well about, you know, before this Vogue edition, you had already started What We See, mm -hmm. which is spelt What We See, S-triple-E. Mm. And the theme is about empathy it's a sort of counter narrative to the kind of growing extremism i think we see on the web and it's got an astonishing reach i think you reach 170 million people 
every month in 37 different countries. So tell us quickly about what we see. It was really born out of my concern of what the internet was becoming for so many people. And I, I'm quite well known for calling it the weaponization of mediocrity. So the, the, the normalization of, of low rent content that people um, were getting too used to consuming content that was incredibly bad for our mental health. So I realized that it wasn't that people have bad taste. It's they generally don't have time to look for really interesting things to consume online. And they end up just being pummeled algorithmically by crap and and they relent. So I wanted to basically build a, uh, a safe harbor of highly curated stories, videos, photography, what have you, by my team, that you wouldn't have to think anymore. You'd say, I'm going to get on what we see, whether it's one of our Instagram pages, Facebook pages, our podcast, our website, and you know that it's been done by actual human beings who publish heart first. And to be honest, what's happened in the last six months has made the industry of advertising and media turn in our direction more than anything else. You know, um, as you know, Ed, at the time we first met talking about what we see, everyone was still quite interested in shock value and cat videos and clickbait. And, and we just never did that. <laughs> Fundamentally, that's not our business. And now people are looking for empathy. They're looking for stories that are reaching our hearts and minds. And we, we are here to, to, to make sure that you have uh, your digital five a day of empathy. So where is your story going? That, that's what we're interested in. What, what are you doing next? Can you tell us a bit about what's happening uh, next or not? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's all sorts going on. So what we see is, is it's really, really picked up in terms of the brands that want to work with us. So we're getting a lot of brands that are coming to us to advise them on their diversity and inclusivity initiatives and the nuances that most large businesses are absolutely terrified of because everyone needs to have a position and hopefully it's a sincere one about what they want to do about diversity and inclusivity, but they want a business like ours that has um, so many people that we're working with um, in grassroots initiatives and also understands how to have a conversation that is not contrived at scale. So that's a big thing. Um, we're building out our production arm. So we're, we're making a couple of documentaries and shorts um, at the moment. And I'm going to also be dipping my toe, if you like, in uh, filmmaking uh, as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a few projects for me to, to, to direct. On the, on the photography side, um, more shoots that I can't talk about <laughs> that you will see in, in good time. <laughs> and, and really, I, whether I like it or not, I've, I have become an activist of sorts in the UK and a lot of young people uh, look to me to help them with all the, the trials and tribulations they're going through, whether it's mental health problems, whether it's having an opportunity to have a seat at the table. Um, so I am working with, with a few businesses to set up initiatives that will hire uh, more people from a diverse background that that are bloody good at their jobs. I'm I'm not interested in handouts. This is this is about talented people that don't have the same network as I have that deserve to be seen. Lisanne, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for sparing the time. Anytime. And we will look on in awe as your career continues to thrive and prosper. That's very kind. Thank you so much, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank Anna. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.
With all the rumblings about the possibilities of more lockdown later on, we all want to take advantage of the current situation and get out and about as much as possible. And what better day out can anyone have than to visit one of the 400 historic buildings, monuments or sites all over England that English Heritage cares for? They also do the blue plaque scheme in London, so you could easily spend a day wandering around from plaque to plaque using them as a guide to all the places where famous people have lived or stayed in London over the last 150 years. Yes, and just one look at the site and you'll see just how much is on offer from Stonehenge to historic battle sites, castles, palaces, stately homes, deserted medieval villages and even a Cold War bunker all over the country. New visitor projects are underway around Hadrian's Wall and there's Tintagel Castle in Cornwall with a dramatic new footbridge that unites both halves of the castle. And you can also visit Kenwood House in Hampstead, one of my all-time favourites with an astonishing art collection. And at the end of the month, there are going to be falconry displays at Kenilworth Castle. And that's just for starters. But social distancing does mean it's essential to book your time slot. So please make sure you visit the website at english-heritage.com .org.uk before you set out. Anyway, Charlotte and I have set the scene, but we're very lucky to actually have with us English Heritage's Chief Executive, Kate Maver, who's been at the helm since 2015 when she arrived from the National Trust for Scotland. Kate, welcome. Good morning. It's a delight to have you here. And as I teased Charlotte when we invited you as a guest, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you was because as regular listeners know, this podcast is really all about me. <laughs> and uh, I helped to create English Heritage when I was a minister, when I split it in two to create English Heritage as a standalone charity looking after its buildings and monuments and historic England effectively as the regulator. But unfortunately, that's all I can claim because since then, Kate, you've taken English Heritage and really powered ahead under this new model. Well, that's right, Ed. It's been a fantastic journey and we've all felt incredibly energised at the prospect of becoming an independent charity uh, without dependence on government. So we've got the bit between our teeth and we've had a lot of fun along the way uh, trying to be imaginative as we can in the different ways we bring history to life. Brilliant. What have been the sort of challenges of becoming a standalone charity? Well, one of the really uh, difficult things is, of course, that you only have limited means and therefore you've got to prioritise always where you're going to invest. So which of your properties are you really going to try and bring up to a different standard or install a new exhibition? And everybody, of course, wants it to be their property. So we have a, a really good system of working out where the visitors are really going to get the most out of it. And we've done some fantastic projects recently, you know, such as a Whitby Abbey up in Yorkshire, where we've completely overhauled the museum there and the experience for families when they're going around the site. We've done a whole new, opened up a whole new garden at Walmer Castle in Kent, which has brought in a huge new audience, people who previously wouldn't have gone there. And that's been, that, that was a garden designed by William Pitt's niece. And uh, it was great to bring back the sunken glen. Uh, and then, of course, we've got, as you said, at, at Kenilworth, where we were able to put up a structure within the ruins so that people could go upstairs and look out the window that uh, Robert Dudley created for Queen Elizabeth I so that she could have a fantastic view. And that was one of the first really big windows in a bedroom. And you could go and look out there and stand where she stood and see what she saw. And these are the sort of experiences you get at English Heritage. You're standing where, where history was actually made. This actually happened in this place and you're standing there now and that's part of the thrill of of the English heritage sites. 
Well, it sounds so exciting. And I gather also that um, Elton Palace has reopened, which I'm very excited about because I tried to go there recently. So so tell us a bit about what that as well. What about Elton Palace, Charlotte? Well, I don't know. It's, it's in London. for It's a huge, great <laughs> palace in, within my reach for a start. <laughs> what I love about Elton is it's got lots of different stories. So, of course, it was a sort of Tudor palace where Henry VIII um, grew up running around in the woods up there with a fabulous view over London from afar. And then, of course, uh, later on, it was bought up by the Courtaulds, who turned it into a party house in the 1930s, you know, very decadent parties were held there. It's got the most fantastic air raid shelter you've ever seen with a billiard table in it. Uh, and uh, they had their um, pet lemur running, running around the house. They had the whole garden was redesigned by Stephen Courtauld, very inspirationally. And that's all been brought back. The house has been restored. It's just a, an art deco enthusiast paradise. And, you know, apart from anything else, you can spend the whole day there with, you know, with a picnic in the grounds uh, and enjoying the, all the story of the 1930s parties that took place there and all the people who came. Can you go in the bunker? <laughs> yes, you, visit you, the bunker? you, you I, can. Charlotte wants to know if you can hold a decadent party there, because that's her... I do, I do, sounds amazing. <laughs> well, funny you should say that. <laughs> we have had some very enjoyable parties there. And also, obviously, English heritage is famous, certainly in London, for its blue plaque scheme, which is, I think, sort of copied around... Different cities do their own schemes, but English heritage... I think I'm right in saying it's only London that English Heritage does blue plaques. Is that right? That's right. We do the London scheme. It's been going since, since the middle of the 19th century. Wow. Who uh, who came up with it then? Because it would have been before any Quangos or heritage organisations, really government-sponsored heritage organisations existed. Yes. Um, I'm not quite sure who is behind it, but I do know that the first blue plaque was to Lord Byron. Of course. And the latest <laughs> blue plaque, of course, is Noor Inyet Khan, which has caused uh, a lot of headlines because... Mm. First Muslim woman, I think, to have a blue plaque. She was the first. She's the first woman of Indian origin to have a blue plaque, and she was our first Muslim war hero who won a George Cross um, in the Second World War. She was one of the special operations executive, a spy. A really, really inspirational story. I do urge um, your listeners to have a look at our website to find out the whole story. But she was somebody who was captured and beaten and tortured and never ever gave anything away, not even her name. And uh, she was. Uh, in the end, she was executed at Dachau. Her last word, liberté. She was such oh, a strong character. I mean, it's a very moving story. It was her and, and three others who were um, captured and executed together. But fantastic to have her commemorated now on a, on a blue plaque so that people walking past will look up and hopefully look her up on our fantastic blue plaques app that you can have on your phone so you can instantly find out more about anyone you come across on a blue no, plaque. I did not know about the blue plaques app because ah. obviously I, I never prepare for these podcasts in the way that Charlotte does. <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to find out about. So Because obviously our listeners will want to know about this. So you can download, uh, presumably look up English Heritage on the app store Yes, Down, yes. And you can do, as, as Charlotte alluded to, do your little walking tour and find well, what's out. What's great about it is, Ed, if you happen to have a spare 10 minutes in London, you're, wait, you're early for a meeting or you're, you, you've got a moment to spare, you, you look on the app and you, you can see all the ones around you, maybe in a side street. Brilliant. So you tuck into the side street, you find the blue plaque, you look it up and then you get the backstory. Oh, that is well, absolutely well, where, where are the two, for example, that we've talked about? Um, the Nuri Nayat Khan one is in Taverton Road. I think it's near Bloomsbury. 
I'm not quite completely sure. It tells you on the on the um, sure, just get website. The app, will you? <laughs> I got to um, get the app. I, just... well, bit, I mean, I want to go today. <laughs> we, we've we've told our listeners we've told our listeners about the app, and we've told them about some of the amazing buildings you look after. I just want to talk a bit about sort of culture wars, really, or not culture. Culture wars is the wrong phrase. Uh, what is interesting, obviously, about Nor Inyat Khan is that you are, I think, very deftly updating, if you like, the blue plaques scheme. It's part of this great debate about statues and so on. Uh, so the blue plaque scheme becomes much more representative of the kind of people who have made England, London, Britain great. I mean, have you had uh, issues with, obviously, people with backgrounds in slavery in terms of blue plaques? Or obviously, it started in the 19th century, but it presumably goes back and commemorates people in the 17th and 18th century and are you thinking very hard about who to uh, honour in the future that are, are perhaps more representative of Britain? Uh, yes indeed and this isn't something that's new for us because what we are very committed to is telling the whole story of England and it's all about contextualising and telling the whole story and so about uh, three or four years ago we recognised that the blue plaques weren't representative of as diverse a community as we'd like so we actually um, we did two things we started a campaign for people to try and nominate more women because they're only 14% of the 950 plaques in London are actually to women uh, so we've been very uh, vocal on that and have elicited a lot more nominations because that is the process by which you get a blue pack and it's as a result of that that we've got Noura Inayat Khan we've got Barbara Hepworth coming up uh, later in this year Uh, and then separately to that we have already set up I think a couple of years ago now a working group uh, about people of a BAME background to try and uh, elicit again nominations, people who can be put forward for a plaque. And as a result of that, uh, we've already got a few more. We've had Bob Marley last year. We've got coming up uh, later on this year, Otto Guano, who is a very famous abolitionist in the 18th century. And these are people that we need to have a pipeline of coming through. Uh, so that's something that we we did uh, a couple of years ago and is beginning to bear fruit now. It's, it's a long game, but it's something we have to be very deliberate about. And of course, you then uncover these fantastic stories and it's a it's a real delight to be putting up plaques to people that have otherwise been obscured. Have you had any people calling for blue plaques to be removed for people who they think it's inappropriate now today? Um, nothing that comes to mind. I think we we do quite they are quite controversial. Some of our choices we get a lot of people write in and complain that we haven't agreed to put up a plaque to somebody that they think definitely should have one. Uh, we have a very distinguished blue plaques panel who have the very hard job of distinguishing who gets one and who doesn't because we only have the funding to put up about 12 a year and obviously you've got to make choices and they are very very careful in terms of weighing up who's maybe had a flash in the pan single success or somebody who's had a lifetime of achievement that might not be such a headline thing but have has actually contributed more uh, really difficult decisions actually i think my dad campaigned to get one for em foster which he succeeded in what did he? Mansions in Chiswick. Ah, but anyway, well, there you are. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about running an organisation like English Heritage, it's a bit like being Director General of the BBC, because first of all, you're a mass membership organisation. I think you've got a, almost a million members. Over a million now. Over a million, yeah. And as you say, everyone has an opinion. And 
your ex-National Trust, I mean, what do you think about this? There's a massive row has suddenly erupted about the National Trust's new proposals. What on earth is going on there, do you think? I think what we're all doing very successfully is providing a really something that has a hugely broad appeal. We have over a million members. The National Trust is now at six million members. Something's working. A huge number of people in this country love what we're all doing. And you can't do things and change change things and be imaginative and develop without somebody protesting because people don't like change. People like things to be as they've always had them. But it's only by testing things and piloting and trying new things that you do evolve and 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 have a have appeal for the next generation generation of millennials who've got a whole different way of looking at the world from from oldies like us uh brilliant well thank you very much thank you for letting charlotte for letting me go off on a tangent there (laughs) 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 thank you for the listeners bearing with me because you're much more interested in knowing where to go my final question is where if you want to know what the best english heritage site is perhaps the easiest thing is to say kate where did you take the secretary of state for culture to (laughs) <laughs> you well, had to pick a site that was going to make sure he gave you a huge check so it was not very difficult <laughs> we we chose porchester castle in hampshire because it is the most fabulous site is the best preserved Roman fort this side of the Alps. You would not believe those walls when you look at them are the Roman walls. The Secretary of State himself said to me, so those aren't the actual Roman walls, are they? And I said, well, yes, they are. And guess why? Because we look after them so carefully. And layered <laughs> onto that, of course, you've got the fabulous medieval castle. You've got a fantastic story we unearthed only two years ago about 2,000 black prisoners of war who were holed up there uh, right at the end of the um, 18th century when the, when the local people had probably never even seen a black face. And uh, what I love about that story, they were, they were captured in the Caribbean when we were fighting the French. They were fighting with the French. Uh, and they were brought back here, prisoners of wars, and they were absolutely freezing. So all the local people were knitting them scarves and things to keep them warm uh, because they were just so unused to the climate. And that's the kind of thing you find when you research stories about some of the sites. And, you know, each castle might look similar to another castle, but each one has got an amazing story. It's absolutely fascinating. And I believe the Secretary of State enjoyed his visit very much. What a brilliant I next to Kate, yeah, thank I think you so... so much for coming on the coming on the show, and uh, I think uh, anyone listening to this podcast will be energized to go and visit. Get on the English Heritage website. Do that. Join, join and discover things you never knew were there around the corner from you. Brilliant. Thanks That's so much. So inspiring. Thank you so much, Kate. <laughs> thank thank you. you too. Thanks. Bye bye. That's all we have time for this week. But next week we're going to be talking to our guests about the secret places you can explore in London with the amazing Open City. Also, the launch of Sky Arts, free of charge to everyone on Freeview, and Digital Theatre, which is a company that I advise, which puts uh, plays online. Uh, It's an education tool and it's wonderful. And we're going to talk to the chief executive. But meanwhile, please visit countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you'll find all the information you need about English heritage and what we see, plus our other podcast about interior design, House Guest with Carol Annette. We'd love to hear all your comments, so do please leave them either on the podcast sites or you can email us on breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. We hope you'll join us again next week. Goodbye, everyone, and goodbye to the Ben and the Old Girls. (laughs) Bye.